and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Brianne Kimmel, network leader at Village Global. Scale and reach are off the charts today. Joe Rogan gets more views than CNN. Kylie Jenner's dominating cosmetics with less than 30 employees. And Conor McGregor can sell more pay-per-views than UFC. But with access comes real responsibility. Fire Festival is the latest snafu to fall trapped with this. So what's going on? The age of the individual is on the rise, and AI is automating away old world jobs while increasing leverage for new world jobs. This paradigm shift is causing us to reimagine work. What does it mean to participate in the workforce? How will we interact with one another? And what are the skills of the future? Brienne comes from a fund backed by the best. Folks that have personally reinvented work for hundreds of millions of people, including Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Reid Hoffman, and Bill Gates. It was fun to dive deep into all things future of work in this conversation. Welcome, Brianne, and thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, Brianne, really excited to have you on the show today and dive pretty deeply into your perspective on, on all things future of work. But before we jump in, tell us a little bit more about your background. Yeah, sounds great. So um, I spent most of my early career at Expedia. Um, I worked across the consumer experience and also the B2B side of the business. And um, this is where I got most excited about enterprise business and the future of work. Um, Expedia was one of the first technologies to really tackle uh, a very large antiquated sector and bring them online. So if you think about airlines, hotel chains, car rental companies, um, before Expedia, essentially like the entire landscape was fairly fragmented. So what they did is essentially by bringing all of these um, services online, it actually created a whole new level of transparency in terms of pricing and star ratings. And I think what was really interesting is during my time at Expedia, this was uh, basically a pinnacle point in the OTA world. So um, Expedia had acquired Orbitz, Travelocity. Um, I had worked uh, on the HomeAway acquisition, which helped us bring non-traditional inventory online. So HomeAway is very similar to Airbnb from the sense that it's actually non-traditional hotel inventory. Uh, so it was really great to really understand, like, how do you use software and how do you use uh, a marketplace, essentially, to bring, um, you know, to bring in an outdated uh, sector or, um, you know, category of businesses online? And then how do you use even reviews and recommendations and, like, uh, really strong data science to essentially bring transparency, um, bring a whole new level of transparency to a certain category? Um, and, and following my you know, experience at Expedia, I ended up going to Zendesk. So I took my platform experience from Expedia and applied it to enterprise software. Um, during my time at Zendesk, we went from one product to seven products. Um, so a lot of folks know Zendesk for Zendesk customer support, um, which is our core product. But essentially, we built a whole suite of additional uh, services such as live chat, um, more robust analytics, and a number of um, basically new technologies that would help us um, not only sell better into the enterprise, but ultimately compete against Salesforce. And uh, it was really cool because during this time, you know, I started spending a lot of time with our customers. So Peloton, Allbirds, um, I built a program called Zendesk for Startups, which was our way to create a dedicated program for the next generation of great companies. So it was a really interesting time in Zendesk's journey where essentially as we were moving up market and, and, and tackling more large antiquated enterprise companies, we also wanted to make sure we had uh, programs and infrastructure in place to really support the next generation of great disruptive companies. 
Yeah, your suite of experiences is, is really interesting to me because it, it, I think it ties to kind of a fundamental underlayer of what's going on in, in the labor markets today, right? So the labor markets we're living through are uh, right now, I think, are incredibly interesting. You know, it's only at certain times in history that we reach such inflection points where policymakers, business leaders, and workers, frankly, are thinking through the benefits and uncertainty at such scale. So, you know, it's, it's a huge point to obviously talk about for a full episode, but at a macro level, what's your view on, you know, how to think about the intersection between technology and the labor market? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm happy uh, to kind of dissect it in terms of how I'm thinking about how do we even just categorize work? Because I think right now there are just so many different ways to actually think about, you know, post-education, you know, how do we classify our work? Like there's a lot of conversations around things like a side hustle or, um, you know, you'll hear folks talk about underemployment. And I think lately the way that I've really been thinking about the labor markets is essentially you have traditional white collar work, which is more knowledge work. Uh, you also have blue collar work, which is technically uh, more based on uh, what we would call like hardworking Americans, where essentially, you know, it, it potentially requires less education and it's more built around you know, like true um, labor. So what's interesting today is that, you know, in addition to having white collar work and blue collar work, we actually are starting to see new trends in terms of centralized and decentralized. So I think a lot of times, you know, technology companies will talk about, like, what does it mean to have remote teams? And remote teams are becoming more and more important. You see that white-collar distributed work is actually, um, there's a broader trend where people actually like working from home. Like, it's great to have your own setup. They like the flexibility. Um, we're, we're seeing trends even in terms of, like, how does this create a more inclusive workforce? I think specifically for new parents and also for um, the aging population, we're seeing that people are willing to work longer and they're willing to, you know, con continue contributing to, uh, you know, their places of employment longer if they're able to choose the, the way that they work. And oftentimes that the way that they work is, is best from home. I like the decentralized centralized framing, because I think if you look at the value stack, you see kind of different dimensions of what's going on today. You have one sort of uh, you have one side of the value stack, which has a ton of increased opportunity sets, right? Finding talent and high skilled workers is tougher in today's market. But then you have the other part of the stack, uh, more low skill workers that in many ways are being left behind. You know, Mark, Mark, Reese and a lot of folks in the Valley are, are pretty staunch advocates that. Technology is always a new, net new job creator, and technology eating all away the jobs is a fallacy of the Luddites. But I do think there's a story of disintermedi disintermediation that's underneath. And, and you have a pretty interesting perspective, actually, on specifically on how millennial men are less likely to work than any other, other gender demographic. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. There's also a lot of research that's been done lately on um, what we call uh, an opt-in rate. And what's interesting is when you look at um, recent changes, we'll, we'll look specifically at um, the US labor market. Um, specifically with the US labor market, we have seen a shift where um, millennial men, so primarily men who are 25 to 34, um, they're actually opting in less than previous generations and, and more specifically post uh, global financial crisis and post you know the 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 previous economic downturn, we've seen a major shift where actually um, there's there's an element of unemployment that's happening or underemployment that's happening across the board. However, we're seeing that men in particular are actually opting out rather than accepting underemployment, which is quite interesting. 
It's interesting too, because you can cut it kind of from a demographic perspective, but you can cut it from a skills perspective. And, you know, one of my, one of my favorite or most interesting stats is if you look at it from a skills perspective, there's actually a huge technical talent shortage. Yeah. So you know, by 2020, there's going to be, you know, over a million and a half software development jobs and actual applicants who can fill them. So how do you think about it kind of from a, uh, from a skills perspective? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point because I think historically when we talk about software, software development, there's an assumption that you need to have a computer science degree. And now that we are seeing um, different types of software development emerging, we're actually seeing a whole new, um, we're seeing a whole new landscape of both software technology that will help us build faster, but also ways for people to learn how to build software faster as well. So I think what's interesting is we're actually starting to see that uh, computer science majors are opting into much more challenging roles when it comes to the full stack of things that we need to build. So you'll notice, like we'll talk a lot about in Silicon Valley is, you know, the smartest and the most technically capable um, developers, they want to work on things like AI ML projects. Um, there's a shift towards, you know, the smartest people really want to work on these new applications and these frontier technologies where essentially you need to have a computer science degree or you need to have additional training for that. Um, what this has actually done, though, is it's actually created a, a whole new landscape of roles and responsibilities within an organization where essentially you don't need a CS degree. Um, so there's a lot of great programs, you know, I think in the in the previous tech cycle, we saw, you know, coding camps and um, things like dev boot camp or like general assembly, where essentially you can learn how to build great applications and especially in sort of in front end web development, you can actually do a lot of things without a CS degree, which is great. So we're kind of seeing these two paths where, you know, I think there are individuals who are technical-ish or technical enough to really be able to add value outside of having like a traditional computer science degree. And I think this is where we'll continue to see programs like Lambda School, for an example, where essentially, you know, it, it does make sense for us to provide new classes of work for people who would like to work for tech companies, but they either can't or aren't ready to commit to a full CS degree. It's interesting because I think that has that has some pretty deep implications for um, for you know, skilling, capability building, and I, I want to jump into that a little bit later in the conversation because I think there's some interesting nuances there. I'm I'm curious to hear your perspective on how you think about uh, job characteristics and job skills that folks should be thinking about. So. The McKinsey Global Institute did a study pretty recently on looking at characteristics and occupations that could be automated away. And it was interesting because the conclusion was less than 5% of jobs were at risk of being fully automated away, but up to 40% of skills that are the underlying components of those jobs will be affected by technology. So how do you think about kind of that conclusion or that statement, both from the perspective of a startup that's building and then from the perspective of an individual worker? Yeah, so this is a topic that I think about a lot. And I think um, what's great is um, the time that I spent at Zendesk was very much uh, a time period where I learned about I learned a lot about various functions within an organization. And I think that customer support is actually a really good analogy for the way that I think about automating work versus augmenting work. 
And if you look about, if you look at the sort of day-to-day roles and responsibilities of a customer support agent, um, there are a lot of things that we can augment and that we can automate to make their day-to-day much more enjoyable. So I think the question and what you, what you sort of read in a lot of headlines is that jobs are being replaced, things are going away. And I think that oftentimes those sort of headlines don't really dig into how complicated and how nuanced each individual role actually is. Um, So I'm an investor in a company called Forethought AI, which does enterprise search, um, and they do uh, what we call human augmentation, and they're starting with customer support. And the reason they started with customer support was um, this is one function within an organization where essentially um, agents don't really have the tools that they need to do their job. And what I mean by that is we have created a a whole suite of different technologies for agents to receive comments from customers and to respond to them, but we haven't gone the next layer deeper where we actually give them access to the right information internally to solve problems quickly. And, you know, at Zendesk, we've done a lot of research around this as well, as far as, you know, how long does it take to respond to a customer's question? And oftentimes the reason that it takes so long is that the agents don't have the information they need to solve the problem. So they don't have access to internal information or maybe, you know, data sitting in in different um, technologies that they don't have access to. So I think what's interesting is oftentimes when we talk about replacing roles or when we talk about workplace automation, what we really need to focus on, I think, in the next, you know, five to 10 years is how do we actually augment a person's day to day and actually remove some of the the daily annoyances that that keep us and hold us back from from doing what we're meant to do faster yeah i i like that framing a lot because one of the things you know i've been most interested by is this idea of digitally enabled work and specifically two buckets of it you know one which is entirely new forms of work and then the second which is work that can be created at scale by platform businesses and, and on that kind of latter point, I had, I had J.D. Ross, who was one of the co-founders of Open Door on the show, and he talked about how he's seeing individuals actually create larger home services businesses off of the Open Door platform. I think it's, I think it's a very interesting kind of nuance. Uh, I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, how do you think about, and there's, there's obviously the gig economy, um, but how do you think about kind of the gig economy in this opportunity set particularly unfolding? I absolutely love what Open Door is doing. And I think that's Open Door will be an analogy for a number of other sectors. I think the same way that the Lambda School model, uh, which, you know, basically you can learn without any sort of fees and you don't have to pay until you get a job. I think these sort of models are great starting points. And I think they will carry into other sectors, which is awesome. Um, what's interesting about building services on top of these platforms is that it creates a whole new opportunity for people to make money. So I think historically, um, when we think about the gig economy, I think one of the challenges with the gig economy is typically um, you will not, they're, they're used as basically complementary or supplementary income. Oftentimes Uber drivers still have a full-time job or they have, you have to essentially have multiple gig jobs to really make a true salary. Whereas I think with a lot of these platforms, like I've, I've spent a lot of time and done research with specifically with people who do full-time um, home away rentals or Airbnb rentals. 
And essentially, you can build your own services business on top of a number of these platforms. Um, I've I've been spending a lot of time lately looking at um, marketplaces for knowledge workers. Um, and I have two examples. So one is a company called Wonder, which is based in New York. And they do market research on demand. So essentially, if um, startups all the way up to Fortune 500s want um, to access additional individuals to help with research, so think uh, basically early research that will then be passed to management consultants or to lawyers or accountants. Um, this is a this is a job that didn't exist before, but you know, for the average person, especially someone who is either in college or recently graduated from college. To build your own business where you're able to do research from home is actually a really compelling alternative to driving for Uber or, you know, doing Postmates after you've recently received your college degree. Let's talk, let's dig into that a little bit more, because I think what you're hitting on is kind of the intersection between doing new services on top of uh, existing platform. And then there's another bucket, which is just entirely new types of work Mm. and and you have a really interesting perspective on this with your thought process on influencers and streamers there's there's a really good tweet uh, that i was reading this weekend and it pointed out that um you know now joe rogan gets more views than cnn kylie jenner is dominating cosmetics and conor mcgregor can sell more papers than ufc and i think there's two threats there right one is just entirely formed new types of forms of work and then the second is kind of the age of the individual and a little bit of you know, power of technology with distribution scale. Let's let's talk about the first one first. Talk a little bit more about your perspective on just uh, not just digitally enabled work, but really entirely new form type of work. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really this is a really interesting point where I think we're seeing this shift where in generations prior, um, I think specifically post World War II, you know, oftentimes people took the job that was open and available and they took a job that was close to home. Um, I actually have recently done a lot of research on post-World War II, like how did we transition from, you know, a wartime culture and specifically very much a blue collar culture into this, into these, you know, new communities of white collar workforces. Like when did we actually start transitioning from, you know, uh, kind of the industrial revolution into where we are today and you know during this period in time that's when we saw the introduction of things like the Myers-Briggs and these sort of uh, new ways of thinking about work where essentially people want purpose I think prior it was it was you know how do you work hard how do you demonstrate that you're working hard and how do you basically provide for your family where I think today it's more about how do we find purpose how do we, you know, find new ways to be creative and to build? You know, I think I think what's what's different about our generation is that, you know, we are highly creative and we are a generation that wants to build something. And we see with these new platforms, Twitch is a great example. Um, YouTube is, you know, a great example as well, where we have these new platforms where essentially you can actually create your own type of work. Um, there's nothing stopping from stopping you from becoming an expert in basically any field that you'd like. Um, and I think an example I have here is I, I recently um, went to TwitchCon, um, which was an amazing experience to spend time with, you know, a large group of people, thousands of people, actually, who have either built a company on top of Twitch from a tech standpoint 
or who actually stream full time. Um, and, and what was interesting is I, you know, I had a conversation with uh, an individual who is a streaming coach. And, you know, I was saying to her, I said, you know, uh, what, what did you study? You know, what did you dream of doing when you were growing up? And she's like, you know, when I was younger, I never thought I was going to be a coach. I never thought I'd be a professional coach. And I would have never thought that I would be helping individuals become more animated as they're, you know, broadcasting their ability to play video games. Like there's just so many classes of work that we didn't know would exist. And I think touching on like influencers and streamers, you know, there are amazing ways to do what you love and make enough money to not only pay the bills, but also become incredibly successful. So I'm super passionate about these new platforms for distribution and how people are using them to create new types of work. That's interesting. Let's talk, let's dig into that a little bit more, because I think one of the things that I'm, I'm seeing is as we move more and more towards this world where, you know, individuals can leverage all sorts of technical platforms, whether it's infrastructure distribution um, and have the ability to create outsized economic value and influence it's, it's exciting because of the leverage, but it also requires, I think, a new set of uh, responsibility guidelines and standards. And, you know, we saw the effect of this on a really small group of influencers and how it exacerbated the impact of Fire Festival. Yeah, I agree. And I think what's interesting and one thing that, you know, when you talk to influencers who are just getting started, um, it goes back to the early days of Hollywood where, Yes, you know, your quality of content does matter, but also there is an element of access and of luck. And I think specifically for for YouTubers that are just getting started, like oftentimes as these platforms start to mature, it does become increasingly hard to get discovered or to become famous. So I think it's really interesting to see over time, like in the age of the individual, um, we actually start to revert back to very... um, tried and true behaviors of individuals ultimately need groups. And I think that's something I saw at TwitchCon where essentially streamers don't operate on their own. They actually find ways to collaborate and influencers also, you know, create this whole network of other influencers where they can promote each other's content or work together and do a lot of collaborations with brands. So I think while we're entering this age of the individual, we're actually starting to see these kind of next generation of social constructs being built, um, which, which is really fascinating. I mean, I think in the, you know, to kind of talk about fire festival for a little bit, fire festival was only successful because they leaned into a very human truth and something that's very true today where, you know, people are looking to have access and they're looking to actually build, you know, credibility through, you know, spending time with other influencers or experts. So while over time we are kind of the age of the individual, I will say that I think with Fire Festival, for an example, you know, these these influencers that were involved in actually promoting the event, you know, part of the hype and part of the demand was actually, wouldn't it be great if I could get access to these influencers and I can spend time with them and I can kind of live access that lifestyle by paying for a ticket and it turns out you know people are willing to pay for those tickets talk a little bit more about kind of distrust and how um in in kind of the age of today you can you have companies where 
you know, reputations take a long time to build and, you know, one misstep or trust can kind of exacerbate out of control. How do you, how do you think about that from the company perspective on how to proactively manage? Yeah. I mean, this is something that I've been spending a lot of time on. I think a lot of these heritage brands that we know and love have become so large that it's very challenging for them to be transparent. So I, I've seen this when working with you know, Fortune 500 companies where, you know, we start to, as your company grows, and this is natural, we start to have more policies. But one of the challenges with a lot of these policies is we start to lose our transparency over time. Um, this is an area where, as we see this next generation of great companies, you know, direct-to-consumer brands are doing incredibly well at being transparent from day one. Um, they're also aligning to their, they are developing their own mission and values which really resonates with today's consumer. But I think one of the questions I have is, you know, long-term, will these direct-to-consumer brands ultimately consolidate, um, similar to the way that, you know, Expedia brands ultimately had to consolidate? And will they eventually lose their transparency over time? And I think it's a little bit early um, for us to see that, but I'm very optimistic and excited to see, you know, these next generation of brands that are more transparent, that have better ingredients, that are really starting to prioritize the consumer um, and just kind of skeptical and wonder at what point in time to, do they become large and bureaucratic as well. And so as you've worked with, you know, a lot of, you know, as you've observed kind of future of work from both an early stage startup and an investor perspective, and you've kind of seen both sides of the gamut, what do you think large corporations and larger organizations get wrong? You know, one of, one of the things I see a lot of the times is this idea of just capturing data without really having a clear framing of the problem you're trying to solve. But when you think about future of work, what do you think that large companies or large organizations get wrong? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I think as far as large companies go, I think you've really nailed it in terms of, in terms of saying, you know, oftentimes the problems that these companies these large companies face, it's actually a, it's, it's a problem of access and of information. So over time, you know, as your company grows, fewer and fewer people have access to core data, fewer and fewer people are truly connected to the, the core mission of the company. And I think oftentimes this has to do with size and with scale. Now, what I think is, is really interesting is now we're starting to see where Companies that, you know, want to go back to their early mission or that want to innovate and, you know, get access to the next generation of consumers, you know, they are willing to acquire companies that match that profile. So I think we'll continue to see large acquisitions specifically in the retail e-commerce space, specifically with um, consumer packaged goods, where essentially it's, it becomes harder and harder to innovate as a large multinational company. However, you know, it is very easy for them to spend time with relevant startups and to actually acquire them and fold them into their portfolio of brands. Yeah, it's interesting. I see a lot of, especially in the consumer goods space, a lot of kind of R&D and innovation is just done via acquisition as opposed to any sort of internal organic R&D. I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on the flip side of that same question, which is, what do you think startups get wrong about large companies, right? I think mm. there's a lot of truth in corporates being, you know, very legacy and not adapting to technology. But I think it's actually a lot less about sophistication with technology, which is often the conversation in, in startup rooms. Um, but it's, it's more so about some of the things you mentioned, right? Organizational challenges, cultural challenges, scale challenges. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I talk to 
um, startup founders a lot about. Um, I think what's challenging is that oftentimes in the Bay Area or if you're in, you know, a very startup centric ecosystem, um, it's very easy to sell to other startups. Um, you understand their buying behavior. You understand, you know, how to partner with them or, or, or sort of what's in it for them long term. But one of the challenges is that selling to the enterprise is very different. Um, it typically requires a different feature set. Oftentimes, you know, companies are looking for maybe if it's healthcare, they're looking for HIPAA compliance. If you are a large enterprise company, like you have to start thinking about different types of contracts and different features. And there's a lot of customizations that come when working with large enterprise companies. Um, so we see that oftentimes startups, I feel like, wait too long to talk to enterprise customers. I think that you can get a significant amount of traction by selling to other startups. And I think we see this a lot specifically with the, with the YC ecosystem. So if you're going through Y Combinator, you get access to not only your current batch of startups, but also um, any YC alumni companies. So you can see companies get to 500K, a million in MRR. Um, and actually, it's just selling to other startups either in the Bay Area or outside of the Bay Area. And what you're missing is actually a deep understanding of like, what are the nuances that come with moving up market and just selling to larger companies, which, you know, I think this ultimately comes down to how large companies make decisions and large companies typically make decisions based on how do you maintain, you know, current traction and, you know, kind of not rock, rock the boat too much. And how do you think about like incremental change rather than disruption? And I think oftentimes that's where startups will come in and, you know, if you're presenting to a large Fortune 500 company, you know, the last thing they want to hear is disruption or a complete change in structure or processes because essentially like what they've been doing is working well and it's good enough. And long term, you know, they want to figure out ways to align with partners that can de-risk what they're trying to achieve and provide incremental change over time. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what's going on in the world of reskilling and capability building. You know, I'd, I'd Austin Allred, the CEO of Lambda School, and Sean Hathi-Ramani, who runs FlockJ, another interesting uh, capability building and, and skilling startup out of YC right now in the current YC batch on the show. And we talked about the education system at large. And I'm interested in your perspective on, you know, what you're seeing with skilling and coaching startups. You know, when you think from first principles, the experience can be pretty neat real-time feedback, dynamic course experiences, flipping the classroom. How do you think about reskilling and capability building today? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, I think over, yeah, I would say even like, let's zoom out over the past 10 years, we've seen a number of great platforms that are focused on skilling and coaching, whether that be um, mentor matching, like helping you find the right person to learn from either as a peer or as someone a little bit more senior, We've seen education startups like Udemy and Coursera, which done, have done a fantastic job in terms of essentially democratizing education that historically you would have to either go get your MBA, go get your MFA. They've taken a lot of these really core fundamental courses and brought them online for individuals. Um, and I think in the next, you know, the next cycle, we're seeing great new companies like Lambda School, which I think what's very interesting about Lambda School is they have infinite scale because, you know, as they're tackling such a large sector, which is education, and more specifically an alternative to undergraduate 
college education, which is historically, you know, extremely expensive. Um, student loans are, you know, one of the largest point of stress for individuals. I think we'll, you know, we'll start to see new types of education and new types of even um, classes of work that come after, you know, individuals graduate from Lambda school. Now, what I think is interesting about a lot of these like reskilling and a lot of the education and coaching startups is if you're selling to a consumer, you're ultimately competing for attention. And I think one of the challenges that I've seen with specifically a lot of marketplaces that essentially offer professional coaching as a service or mentorship as a service, you know, one of the challenges here is accountability and it's also, um, you know, competing for attention. So one of the things that I've seen is oftentimes with these marketplaces where one side is either um, an expert or a mentor or, you know, someone that is historically fairly time poor, you know, facilitating that matching is very important, but also ensuring like what's in it for both sides. You know, it's very clear that there's a whole category of young professionals who are looking, who are hungry and eager to learn more. But on the supply side, it's always a little bit more challenging to actually find the right people who A, have the time and B, have the right incentive to actually, you know, invest in an individual for even a short, medium or long term period. Yeah, one of the things I always and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. One of the things I always kind of wonder with uh, with some of these kind of coaching on demand platforms or so, especially when they're consumer focused, is how do they solve for the platform leakage problem? Right. So if you think of. If you think of, you know, all marketplace businesses are different, but if you think of some of the kind of high profile companies that ended up not succeeding, like, you know, HomeJoy out of YC, right, raised $40 million. I think one of the big learnings um, from that, from the nature of the transaction itself was that they were doing a great job of helping you match and, and find someone. But then the nature of that transaction was once you found someone to come in and service your home, you kind of, you trusted them and you didn't really need to go back to the platform. And so you ended up having a lot of these kind of platform leakage problems where folks would say, you know, as a consumer, it doesn't make sense for me to pay an opportunity. And then as a vendor, it doesn't make sense for you to take a price cut um, just by being on the platform. And if we're going to develop a kind of long-term relationship, uh, it just makes sense to take the transaction off of the platform itself. That's something I think about a lot with uh, kind of mentorship as a service, training as a service, et cetera. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think... In early marketplaces, you know, we've seen that with um, even with home sharing apps to an extent, we've seen that with the dog walking on demand services. Like once you find someone that you really like and you build a long term relationship, it is difficult to maintain a platform lock in over time. Um, What's interesting with a lot of these coaching applications is I think there is an opportunity to do more than just one-on-one matching, but also how do we think about the group facilitation of conversations? Um, I actually recently read an article that I thought was interesting that made the comparison that events and conferences are the new, um, that's like the number one choice for editorial. So historically, you know, you would have magazine coverage. It was more about, you know, impressions and eyeballs and creating like brand building was actually built on a very specific aesthetic and look whereas now that we're in this sort of uh individual economy um as you said now that we're in this individual economy what happens is is actually people want to be directly involved in your product experience 
whether that's events or becoming an influencer and part of your platform. Like, I think there are ways to facilitate a lot of these service marketplaces by doing more of, you know, kind of a a focus on community building rather than one-on-one matching. But I agree. I think to your point, like one of the challenges with a lot of these services marketplaces is when you're competing for attention from a consumer point of view, then oftentimes you'll find these companies will ultimately convert to almost an enterprise sale. Um, if it's something that your work is paying for and it's something that becomes a core part of your education or your career, then people are more likely to opt in and to lean in. Um, an example that I have there is there's a company called Plato, uh, which is also a YC company as well, and they do um, mentorship uh, for engineers. And what's interesting is that for Plato, um, they see high retention on both sides of the marketplace. So both for the, um, on the supply side, these are um, mentors and these are mentors at top tech companies. And their goal is to essentially build a personal brand for themselves. They use it as a way to hire and recruit, um, you know, up and coming engineers. And then on the demand side, you know, you have very hungry and eager young professionals who want to connect with leaders at other companies, not necessarily even in terms of like, I'm ready to switch careers. I want to move to this company, but there are a lot of great things that you can learn from individuals at another company. Um, I always use like personalization as an example. So if you're working at a Bay area startup and you want to learn about personalization, then, you know, Netflix is obviously one company that you'd love to spend more time with. They're actually located in Los Gatos, and it doesn't make sense for you to ever facilitate an in-person conversation. But even getting access to someone who's worked on, you know, a personalization at the size and, and scale of Netflix is a really compelling offer. Let's talk about, let's talk a little bit. I want to pick up on that last thread of, you know, personalization. And I want to use it as a segue to talk a little bit more about ML and AI and how it will affect the workplace. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier in the conversation. You know, one of the companies that I'm an angel in, um, Embellus, is doing really interesting work in the assessment space. And I see a lot of interesting applications for ML and AI in helping improve the end-to-end talent equation. So mm. screening at the top of the funnel by mapping the skills, you know, matching and rerouting talent internally. Talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in the space and how you think about it from a macro perspective. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. Like with AI ML, we are seeing... Um, we're seeing the impact across multiple different sectors and functions. I think from a recruiting standpoint, what's great is we're actually able to facilitate much stronger matches. And I think what I'm starting to, to see as far as a macro level trend is, you know, oftentimes like re- the recruiting process is a pretty complex one. Like you can divide it into, Uh, college recruiting, which historically there has been a matching and facilitation problem where essentially you would have one person in recruiting who works at one company and they would go to, you know, a career fair, which happens once or twice, twice a year. Um, What you would find is essentially, you know, students would go to these career fairs in hopes of meeting someone and you'd wander around and it was just sort of like, antiquated version of matching, which, you know, is not great for the employer because they can only meet a limited number of candidates. It's not great for students because they don't really have the time or the ability to truly have a conversation and to demonstrate 
how they're different from, you know, the hundreds of other candidates that you'd see at one of these large university um, or college career fairs. So what's great is we're actually starting to see these new platforms. Like I'm an investor in Dev.2 and, you know, Dev.2 is one of the largest communities of software engineers. And, you know, the way that it's different from, say, a GitHub or from, from other platforms is it's actually more about the individual. So it's a place where you can create a profile. You talk about your skills as a developer. You also talk about what you're looking for in terms of culture fit. And you can, you know, write your own blog posts that are related to, like, you know, remote work or work-life balance or any sort of parts of your day-to-day that matter in both a personal and professional context. Um, what's great about that is you can actually start to facilitate matching that extends beyond just these are the things that I've done. I think LinkedIn is great in terms of having a nice resume, but the challenge with resumes is it doesn't really ensure future happiness. So with a resume, they are data points that you know really communicate where you've been, but they don't really communicate where you'd like to go. And I think that's where recruiting and matching is really broken because it's actually a way to, you know, um, lean into any personal biases that you have. So then you start selecting candidates based on where they went to school or what their, you know, most recent job was, but it doesn't really communicate appetite and hunger and drive and all of these things that we look for when hiring new candidates. Yeah, I like the framing of kind of a historical perspective versus a future oriented perspective. That's actually, you know, one of the things that I like that Embellis does the most is this idea of, you know, recruiting by second order proxy of where you went to school, you know, what your previous job was. It doesn't really give you a great full picture of the story, right? But if you can start to understand how people um, you know, think about problem solving, critical thinking, right? Judgment, how they exercise judgment. These are the core skills that uh, you really want to see, right? You want to see in any sort of type of worker. And it gets especially interesting, I think, when you actually put blind screens on top, um, to your point a little bit around kind of confirmation bias, right? And I think you actually end up getting more interesting results based on um, the actual kind of first order observations that second order observations might not have gotten. What are the most interesting kind of specific applications of technology you know, you're seeing as related to you know, the workforce and kind of workforce productivity uh, and what you're most excited about today? Um, so I've been spending a lot of time in basically three areas. Um, we talked a lot about new platforms for distribution and new classes of work, such as streamers, influencers, um, and some of the new workplace applications that will tie into the gig economy. Um, I'm also looking at distributed teams and, and not, not from the lens of do companies allow you to work from home one or two days a week, but what does it actually mean for a company to be fully distributed from day one? And I think we have a few examples today that have proven out this model. So we have Envision, we have GitHub, which is primarily distributed as well, and we have you know, these, a a whole like kind of plethora of new startups that are essentially starting with distributed teams from day one, because, you know, it's a great way to reduce overall costs. So you can remove real estate from the equation. You can hire great talent from anywhere. You are not, you know, constrained to only one or two markets where you have your, your HQ and maybe like a satellite sales and marketing office. So we're really starting to see like what are the you know the deep mechanics to build a decentralized team from day one. 
Um, that's more on, on the white collar and on, you know, in terms of like, you know, knowledge work, I think on the blue collar side, what's really interesting is we're starting to see new applications that truly understand both centralized blue collar work, which is more factories and and more kind of large companies. And we also see new applications for decentralized blue collar work, which the example that I use there is a company called Earnin and Earnin is um, backed by Andreessen Horowitz. And they um, allow people to get paid in between paychecks. And what's great about the model that they've built is they're actually using um, a number of models that they've built to understand, you know, how many hours are you working on a, on a weekly, monthly basis? You know, how much, how much money, you know, can we give you in between paychecks to actually unlock new opportunities for you as an individual? Um, one way that they do this, which is super cool, is they actually can forecast on when are you actually at work? So they can use uh, data from your phone, which tells you, you know, on average, you're spending five to 10 hours. Let's say if you if you work in an hourly wage job, um, you're spending five to 10 hours at this certain company. Uh, Maybe you work at um, like a restaurant, something like that. But then you also have a side hustle where you also spend another, you know, five to 10 hours. So they can actually start to forecast, you know, how much money can we give you in between paychecks? Because we know, you know, the number of hours that you're working, we see that you are fairly consistent in the hours that you work. However, you know, like, like most people, unforeseen bills come up, maybe it's a medical expense, maybe it's a family holiday, like, whatever might come up, like, there are just certain times where we need a little bit of extra cash, and they're able to facilitate that using what they understand about the hours that you're working and, and more importantly, like the data that goes into this model that they've built. This has been a this has been a super interesting conversation, Brianna. And I, you know, as we round out, I I'd love to ask you, you know, the kind of Peter Thiel question as applied to the future of work, which is, you know, what do you believe to be true about this idea of future of work that many people wouldn't agree with you on? I think to date, what I've been thinking a lot about is how do we augment the way that people work today, and I think that makes AI ML fairly approachable. I think in the short term, it's really great um, for us to align on the fact that there are a number of things that we do in our day-to-day that are highly inefficient. But I think long-term, I'm actually very optimistic about the automation of work. Um, What I've noticed in in terms of understanding a lot of deep nuances in terms of blue-collar work is there are just categories of jobs that shouldn't exist. Um, I don't believe that people should be truck drivers. Um, when you look at the overall side effects and, you know, from a, from a safety standpoint as far as, like, number of car accidents, but also when you look at just the overall health of truck drivers, it's a really, really sad job to have. Um, and I think that there's a number of ones like this where when we start to look at um, different categories of work, like, you know, historically, we haven't had the technology to automate jobs that are quite frankly, unsafe for people. So I think over time, I'm, I'm really optimistic in terms of automating things that are incredibly unsafe. And we can look at a list of, you know, these are the top 20, 40 jobs that have the most amount of workplace injuries. And we can just we can just figure out ways to solve those problems. Like I think that is a starting point. You know, if I were going to start a company today, I would start with that list. I would look at. I think another space that's really fascinating is um, if you look at when we when we talked about you know millennial males opting out of work. You know, huge a huge percentage is actually driven by the opioid epidemic. 
which is a man-made epidemic. You know, it's a problem that's impacting, you know, a large percentage of specifically American males. So how do we actually find alternatives to, you know, prescription medication? How do we disrupt certain, I would call them cartels, essentially these large antiquated spaces where essentially we are causing harm to the average American person. So I think for me, short term, you know, very much aligned in terms of let's, let's augment what people are doing today. But I think long term, like they, we need to automate work. Like we need to automate certain jobs that are incredibly unsafe. Well, Brian, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I'm glad you were able to make the time. You know, thanks again for joining us. We, we really enjoyed having you on today. Yes, thanks so much.